Hey listeners, thanks for dropping in. I'm Christy. And I'm Melissa. And this is Buried Motives, where we dig deep into the details of some of the most gruesome dirtbag murderers. Welcome back to Buried Motives. We're so glad you've joined us today. And we hope you all had a wonderful Christmas with your families. Yeah, hopefully you did. Or maybe you're just coming back to us to escape your family time. (laughs) (laughs) And today is our last episode of the year. The year is almost over. We did it, you guys. We made it through 2021. (laughs) We did. Hopefully 2022 has got some better things in store for everybody. Didn't we say that about last year? I find I say that about every year. (laughs) I stay hopeful. (laughs) I'm like, hey, this year is a crapshoot. Hopefully next year is a better one. (laughs) Just kidding. She's eternally hopeful. (laughs) I am. It's going to get better. I find the year's never as bad as we think that it is. No. There's lots to be thankful for and lots of things to look forward to in the new year. Absolutely. So speaking of the new year, to preface my case today, I wanted to ask a question. What is a tradition that many people across the world participate in during New Year's? Getting drunk. (laughs) That's one for some. (laughs) Having a great big party. That could be two. (laughs) Okay, maybe I wasn't very smart in asking this question. I'm talking about making New Year's resolutions. Oh, yes. Of course. (laughs) I was thinking more like the New Year's Eve. What do you do on New Year's Eve? It's all about the food. Yes. (laughs) I love appetizer food on New Year's Eve. I like playing games. It is the best. It really is. Yeah. So speaking of New Year's resolutions, did you make any last year that you kept? Nope. (laughs) Are you making any this year? Nope. (laughs) Too much pressure, right? Yes. I gave up on that a long time ago. (laughs) Setting goals is not one of my things. I lied. I did make a New Year's resolution last year, and that was to drink more. (laughs) To drink more? Drink more water? (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Well, that's always my resolution throughout the year. (laughs) Less Pepsi, more water. (laughs) And you know what? I did not accomplish it. Failure again. (laughs) I just need some good tips on how to drink more water during the day. Maybe I need to text you every hour. That's right. Yeah. We all walk around pretty dehydrated. Yeah. And it would solve so many of your problems if you were just well hydrated. Yeah. For me, if I got more sleep, that would solve a lot of my problems too. (laughs) So that'll be your New Year's resolution. Get more sleep. We'll see. I'm not sure if I'm ready to commit to that just yet. (laughs) It's not going to (laughs) happen. But last year, I decided I'm going to read 12 books this year. Oh. Just for fun. Just because I want to read them. So have they all been true crime? No. Some of them have. (laughs) I read a John Douglas book, of course. Yeah. (laughs) My favorite criminal profiler. But no, I've read a good variety. That's a good goal. I like that one. Yeah. I even threw in a good self-help one. (gasps) Good job. About reducing stress. (laughs) I'm not sure how much it helped, but (laughs) it added stress to get through that book because it was a hard read. (laughs) But maybe our New Year's resolution will be to continue to give you some really great cases and some really good episodes. Oh, I do enjoy doing that. So that one's an easy one to keep. That's one we can keep. But with all this talk of resolutions, I'm assuming that your case has something to do with that. It absolutely does. Before I get into it, though, I was just geeky enough that I looked up the definition of a New Year's resolution. And it said it is a tradition most common in the Western world, but also found in the Eastern world, in which a person resolves to continue good practices, change an 
desired trait or behavior, accomplish a personal goal, or otherwise improve their life at the start of a new year. Like drinking more water. That's right. Sounds great, right? Yeah. Sounds like a good thing making a New Year's resolution. Well, today's case is about a dirtbag who didn't quite understand the assignment of what it means to make a New Year's resolution. Oh, no. As the year 1993 began, this man made a New Year's resolution to become a serial killer. What? Seriously, that was his New Year's resolution. Like that's what he's writing down on his paper. Like yep. this year I'm going to do this. Yep, totally. He was just like, Kate, that's it. I'm going to become a serial killer. And sadly, he did indeed accomplish this personal oh. goal that he set for himself. And you'll kind of find out why. Okay. Why he gets to this point where he's made this type of resolution for himself. That's quite the goal. Right? This year I want to be a serial killer. <laughs> yeah. Next year I want to be lethally injected. <laughs> Yeah. Like, what was he thinking? I don't know. We've said this before, but make better goals. (laughs) This is not a good one to set for yourself. For today's case, we are traveling to the UK. We appreciate all of our UK listeners, so this one is for you. Colin Ireland was born on March 16th, 1954 at the West Hill Hospital in Dartford, Kent, which is in England. So his last name is Ireland, but this is taking place in England. (laughs) (laughs) Just to make it confusing. That's right. And Dartford is about 29 kilometers or 18 miles southeast of central London. Colin's mother was only 17 when she gave birth to him and his father split before he was born. His father was not named on the birth certificate, so Colin would never know who he even was. Colin's mother worked as a news agent's assistant, and despite help from her parents, she raised Colin in poverty. She was looked down on for being an unwed mother in the 50s. Oh, for sure. Colin described himself as a child as being, quote, a thin, lanky little runt, always getting the worst of it. Oh, that is not what his picture looks like now. No, it doesn't. (laughs) But he meant that he was bullied at school, both physically and verbally. Mm. By the time he reached his teens, he would already be getting in trouble with the law. When will we learn not to bully? (laughs) When Colin was five, his mother moved out of her parents' home with Colin. She tried to do it on her own. And throughout this case, she really had good intentions when it came to Colin. You know what? For the most part, I think that is with all parents. They're just trying their best. It doesn't mean that they necessarily accomplish the best. But I think for the most part, most of us are just trying our best. Most of us are. But a lot of the cases we cover, the parents are not. Or is that just their best? Well, if Mary Bell's mom dropping her out of a two-story window was doing her best, I don't know. Do better. (laughs) (laughs) You can set that bar a little bit higher, but I get what you're saying. And it sounds like, by all reports, that Colin's mom was trying to do her best. Over the next six years, the two would move a total of nine times, sometimes moving back with her parents or even resorting to a homeless shelter for women and children. Colin found it hard to fit in at school. He was always the new boy. Oh, which didn't help the bullying situation, I'm sure. No, or his confidence. No. Colin would skip school. Sometimes his mother would even let him. And when he would arrive late, he would experience the punishment of caning. What is caning? (laughs) Well, let me tell you, because I had to look it up. So first I was like, canning? But there's only one end, so I'm pretty sure it's pronounced caning, which is basically getting the strap with a cane, traditionally made from rattan or palm stems. Ooh. Did you ever get the strap when you were in school? No. Listeners, did any of you get the strap when you were in school? (laughs) Some of you were old enough. (laughs) And misbehaved enough. (laughs) That's right. I remember my older brother getting the strap a couple of times. Oh, really? Yeah. And his best friend lived with us for a long time, actually, from like grade six till after he graduated. And when they would get the strap, they learned that if they put salt on their hands, when the teachers would strap their hand, it would bleed. And then the teachers would freak out. And so they did that to mess with the teachers. All of that 
that sounds awful to me. I know. And he didn't turn out to be a dirtbag. <laughs> and if you're listening, brother, I love you. <laughs> I'm glad you survived the straps. But you probably had them coming. <laughs> As a result, he struggled with his classes and became lonely and recluse. Colin's mother got married in 1961, but it didn't seem to help their financial situation. In 1964, when Colin was 10 years old, he came home from school one day to find out that they had been evicted from their residence once again. So he had no stability growing up. When his mother became pregnant with her second child, she placed Colin in foster care for a year to try to get on her feet. And there were actually no reports of anything bad happening to Colin while in foster care. So I wonder if he would have wanted to stay in foster care. His mom did show love to him. Yeah. So it was just nice, I guess, that she could use that resource. Yeah. Soon after Colin was able to move back home with his mother and her husband and the new baby, his stepfather walked out on them, which was just one more abandonment for Colin. Because he had probably formed a relationship with him. Yeah. When Colin was 12, his mother married another man, and this relationship would turn out to be a stable one for his mom. Something that would turn out to be rather pivotal for Colin during his childhood was that he was approached on four separate occasions by men who tried to talk him into performing sexual acts with them. And he was also spied on by a pedophile. Nothing ever came from these advances, but it did leave Colin feeling violated and enraged. Yeah, I can see that. Murder would not be Colin's first criminal offense. He would incur a lengthy rap sheet starting in his teens. And this we find quite common in a lot of murderers. Mm -hmm. They start with other crimes. And they build up, yeah. Mm-hmm. In 1970, at age 16, Colin wanted to run away to London and got caught stealing the four pounds he needed to get there. So I did the conversion. That would be about 675 Canadian, which today is about $50 that he okay. had stolen. Yeah. He was sent to a school for boys with emotional and intelligent issues. He was bullied here as well and ended up setting fire to another boy's belongings. Arson. Yeah, I was just going to say, which arson, we all know, is a serial killer indicator when combined with other things. Yeah. After he left this school, he began robbing people and was sent to a borstal, which is basically, from what I understood, like a juvenile detention. Okay. Colin hated it there. He managed to escape once, but was returned to finish out his sentence. At age 21, Colin was charged with two counts of burglary and sentenced to 18 months in prison. He served one year and was released in November 1976. The next year, he was incarcerated once more for demanding with menace, which I understood to mean personal robbery or mugging. And again, he was sentenced to 18 months in jail. It is so interesting to me, and we'll talk about this next week too, is that the names of the crimes, they're different from country to country, which I never... I totally get now, but I never actually put that into place before. Yeah, and I don't go on to mention all of his crimes that he's convicted for, but there was a few of them that I had to look up and be like, what, what, what is that? Yeah, and I wonder if our crimes, if they would sound so odd to somebody else from a different country. And really, does mugging make more sense than demanding with menace? Like, to me, demanding with menace makes more sense Sense than to say mugging. Mugging, yeah. This pattern continued over the next several years. By this time, Colin had grown into a six-foot-two man and was no longer a lanky runt. He grew into a big dude, a big guy. He was described as a gentle giant. Colin had a few relationships until he met his first wife, Virginia Zamet, in 1981. She was nine years older than him, had a five-year-old daughter, and was paralyzed. She had been in an accident at age 24 that left her in a wheelchair. The couple married in 1982. Their relationship started off as a happy one, until Colin unfortunately had an affair with another woman, causing the pair to divorce in 1987. Oh, dirtbag. I know. 
Colin, do better. Mind you, that is really mild compared to what's coming. (laughs) Two years later, Colin met his second wife, Janet Young. She owned a pub named The Globe in Buckfist, Devon. This is where they would meet. And I watched an interview with her and she seemed to be smitten with Colin right away. She had two young children and they seemed to like him as well. Janet did say that one of her friends, who I believe worked at the pub, had tried to warn her about Colin, saying that he seemed off but she didn't listen. Did he have a thing for kids? Or do you think that these women were just vulnerable? Always suspicious of those older men that find women with children. (laughs) But remember, he was incarcerated most of his 20s. Oh, So by the time he's out dating... He would be older. Yeah, he's not going after girls half his age, which is good. Yeah. And so the pool of women that he would be dating, a lot of them have already been married in their 20s and had children and stuff. That makes sense now. Yeah, I don't think he had a thing per se for kids. Okay. They moved in and were married very quickly and things again were going well until all of a sudden Colin stole his wife's car, took all their money and just split. What? Just out of the blue? Yep. Just one day. up. Cleaned out the accounts and left. Dirtbag. Yeah. They were divorced in 1991 and Janet reflected that he married her probably just to take advantage of her since she was a successful business owner. Oh. Colin would have a hard time finding decent work as he didn't have any professional training or skills. I did read in several sources that he served in the military at one point, but I was unable to find any specific details about his time as a soldier. Okay. It was just confirmed over and over that he was a soldier, yeah, and he did serve. He was a soldier? Like he served in the army or he was just in the military? It said he was a soldier. Okay. Yeah. After leaving Janet, he moved to Essex, which is about 60 kilometers or 40 miles east of London, and he began working at a shelter for homeless people. He really enjoyed this job. He felt for the people that were housed there. At some point, Colin and his friend worked as volunteers in the community patrolling the streets, just like citizens on patrol. Which if you've listened to our episodes, you know that Melissa and I used to do COP where we would patrol the area in our small town. And if you see anything suspicious, you report to, for us, the RCMP or the police. And so him and his friend actually did that. Oh, interesting. Mm -hmm. So it sounds like he has some compassion then. He does. Yeah. Yeah, he absolutely. He has the ability for empathy and feelings and he's not just like your typical psychopath. That would make a New Year's resolution to become a serial killer? Yeah. Oh, I'm just lost about how this turned For sure. And we're going to get into that right away. And maybe this will help give some understanding. He felt like he was looked down on his entire life, being born out of wedlock and having no father. So he seemed to like being recognized and needed in the community. Unfortunately, some of the staff at the homeless shelter made some complaints about Colin and he was let go in December of 1992. Do you know what the complaints were? One of the staff at the shelter said later that he was troubled, frustrated, and didn't know what to do with his life. One of the other employees had said he just seemed off. Oh, so he was a little odd. So they sent him away which is unfortunate because if he would have actually stayed there maybe he would have found a place and not went on to do what he does right because he was actually trying for a small moment in his life there wasn't any like substantiated like he wasn't like hurting people or robbing people or doing anything wrong no no real malice they said he was troubled and frustrated so i don't know if he had some outbursts there was not a lot of detail Now in his late 30s, Colin was jobless and had no real skills or direction. He decided that he was going to make a New Year's resolution that would make him finally stand out and get recognized to be remembered. He was tired of being a nobody. Oh no, so he's a fame seeker. Mm -hmm. He absolutely is. 
Colin was a true crime enthusiast and had read a book called Whoever Fights Monsters, written by FBI profiler Robert Ressler. Colin would use this book almost as a manual to become a well-known serial killer. He decided that this would be his new career. Clinical forensic psychologist Mike Berry commented that Colin wanted notoriety and saw committing murder as the perfect way to bring him infamy. So this is our reasoning why he decides to do this. He just got let go in December. New Year's is coming up. So he's like, hey, I got to make a change. I need to stand out somehow. What a bizarre choice to make. Right? And he was totally into true crime. And he had been reading this book and thought, oh, I'll know how to get away with it. Because I've been reading this book by this FBI profiler. And it's going to give me all the tips and tricks that I need. How many times have you and I said that to each other? It's true. (laughs) The more you know, right? That's right. Yep. He wanted to be as prolific as Bruce Lee, who killed 26, Dennis Nilsson, who killed between 12 and 15, and Peter Sutcliffe, who killed 13. So he had tried the military. He had been a volunteer, community watch person. He tried managing a homeless shelter. None of this worked, so he thought he should change his plan to be recognized. And I thought it was interesting that he went from a life of crime to trying to be an upstanding and respected member of society, only to then take the leap to murder. Which is too bad. It is. Unfortunately, Colin would fulfill his twisted New Year's resolution by brutally murdering five men between March and June of 1993. So I wonder if it was because of his past convictions that people didn't feel secure around him. And that's why they were more prone to complain about his behaviors. Oh, could have been. There could have been some prejudice or stereotypes perceived about him. We talk all the time about like, should people be given second chances? And it looks like he was actually trying to make like change his life. Yeah. And just kept getting dismissed over and over. Or maybe it should have been just enough for him to know for himself that he was making good decisions and didn't need anybody else to recognize it. Right. And because he'd been looked down on his whole life, he wanted that notoriety. He wanted to be recognized and looked up to and respected and known. Colin began by creating a kill kit, which included rope, gloves, a knife, and a change of clothes in the event that he would get blood on him. Colin Ireland made a calculated plan to murder gay, sadomasochistic men. He thought they would be easy victims because they would be willing to be tied up and that the public would have less sympathy for them as victims. Most male serial killers who murder other men are gay. However, Colin claims that he wasn't. Most male heterosexual serial killers target women. So it was kind of odd that he was targeting men. But given that past experience, maybe he was envisioning himself as fighting the monster because he felt that he had been victimized by gay men. Yeah, totally. That's what I think. Some believe that he could have been gay himself and was trying to kill that part from himself. But I wondered if it was more likely that he was fueled by the sexual advances that he received from older men as a child. He would only prey on men who approached him first. And so I agree with you. That's where my thoughts went is that it stemmed from his childhood, those men making advances on him. And it was interesting that he wouldn't approach his victims. They had to approach him for sex. And then in his mind, he felt like they deserved it. Mm. There's got to be some reason or some way that he justifies killing these people that if he feels compassion for them, he's got to justify his actions in some way. For sure. And so he justifies them in thinking that he is ridding the world of more monsters that are going to prey upon other people. Right. And I do have that in a quote later. In oh, the sorry. <laughs> where, no, it's good. Where he talks about how he was ridding the world of the vermin. Yeah. So Colin would meet all his victims at the Colhern Pub, which was a popular gay bar in London. He had once worked as a bouncer at a gay pub, and so he was able to fit right in. He kind of knew the culture. Oh, and he totally looks like a bouncer with that big, thick neck. Oh, yeah. Yeah. He's a big dude. You'll have to go on our Facebook to check out his picture. 
At this time, it was customary for customers at the gay pubs to wear different colored handkerchiefs in their back pockets. This let the other guys know what type of sex they were into. And this helped Colin to prey on men who liked to be the submissive or slave partner. Because he could tell by their color of handkerchief. Okay. But you think if he was trying to get rid of the worst or kill the monsters, you think he'd go after the ones that were dominant and... Well, no, he needed to be dominant. He had to be the one to tie them up. Mm, Because that was leading into his plan. Yeah. Okay. Once approached, he would convince his victims to go back to their places under the promise of sadomasochistic sex. Once there, he would bind, torture, and kill his victims. He would be dubbed as the Gay Slayer. At the age of 39, Colin murdered all five of his victims in a three-month span between March 8th and June 12th of 1993. That's pretty quick then. So did he escalate in that time then? He does, yep. He does his first murder and then it's actually two months before he does the second murder. Mm. And he keeps escalating. They get shorter and shorter in between. I'll go through each murder chronologically. Peter Walker was the first man to meet his ultimate demise at the hands of Dirtbag Colin Ireland on Monday, March 8th. So he was starting off at the beginning of the week. Yep, Monday, March 8th. Peter was 45 years old. He worked as a theater director and choreographer, and he lived in Battersea. Colin and Peter met at the Colhern pub, and once Peter extended the invitation to Colin to return to his flat with him, his death would be imminent. At Peter's flat, Colin was able to bind and gag him, likely easily under the pretense of submissive sex. But an ex-boyfriend of Peter's said that Peter wasn't really into that and likely had to be talked into it by Colin. Or maybe his preferences had changed. Once bound, Colin gave Peter a beating with his fists and then whipped him with his dog's leash. Colin then proceeded to suffocate Peter by holding a plastic bag over his head. I thought, what a terrifying way to go. He must have felt so helpless because he's all bound and can't move. Colin then took two teddy bears and left them in a 69 position on top of Peter's dead body for police to discover. And I saw pictures of it and it's way more graphic than it sounds, the way that he posed these little teddy bears. He also stuffed condoms into his mouth. Some reports said that Colin did this after finding out that Peter was HIV positive while rifling through his things, but other accounts said that the news of his HIV only came out during the autopsy. Okay. Next, Colin went to work to cover his tracks. He cleaned all the surfaces that he might have touched and gathered any items that could connect him to the murder. Remember, he read the FBI agent's book as a manual. Not wanting to be detected, leaving the flat in the middle of the night, Colin waited in the apartment with Peter's dead body and then traveled home on the train with all the morning commuters. Oh, so he would just get lost in the crowd. Yeah, so he really was using this book to his advantage. He threw items of evidence out the window of the train to get rid of it during his commute. Later, when Colin would confess to his crimes, he described spending the night with his victim's corpse, saying, quote, I think that affected me mentally to quite a degree, sitting with his body for five to six hours, watching him gradually get blotches, go cold. It wasn't something that I could cope with, to be honest. He said he, quote, didn't deal with it too well. Oh, so he totally has a conscience. Yeah. So he didn't like sitting with the dead bodies, but he does it every single time and leaves in the morning rush hour to try and avoid getting caught. Which is just makes his decision to become a serial killer even more bizarre. It really is. Because our other psychopaths and sociopaths, they don't even care. No, they sometimes will spend a week or so with the dead bodies and not even care. They're eating chips and playing video games or whatever. beer. (laughs) Yeah. I did listen to him. Like I watched his interview when he was talking about this part and just talking about how, yeah, it it wasn't a good idea. I didn't handle that well, but he did it. Because that's what he had to do to not get caught. So does he confess? Like, does he give himself in? He gives a full confession later. Oh, I love it when they confess. Mm -hmm. 
Peter's dogs were locked in another room and Colin decided to leave them locked up before leaving. The only thing left to do was for Colin to wait to hear about his handiwork all over the news. He was excited to hear about it. The next day, when nothing was mentioned in the media, Colin phoned the Sun newspaper to tell them about the dogs left in the flat. What? Why would he call the newspaper? Why not a neighbor? Be like, hey, the dogs need to be let out. He wants this notoriety. He wants to be this famous serial killer. Like, you can imagine he goes home and he's just waiting, waiting for that news, the headlines, to have it plastered all over the media. He just needed to be a little bit more patient. Yeah, and there was nothing. Because eventually the body's going to get found. Eventually. But he needed it right away. Yeah, he wanted it right away. Yeah. And at first, the reporter who answered didn't think it was a big deal until Colin told him that he had murdered the dog's owner. So he calls in and confesses. He calls the police a lot during this case because the police honestly are not giving these murders the recognition that Colin wants. By the next morning, he'd be like, okay, it's got to be in today's news, right? Okay. Two months later, Colin found his second victim on Thursday, the 20th of May. Christopher Dunn was 37 years old. He lived in Weldstone and he worked as a librarian. Chris unfortunately invited Colin back to his flat and willingly put on a leather body harness over his naked body, was handcuffed and had his feet tied together. Similar to what he had done to Peter, Colin first beat and tortured Chris. He demanded that Chris give him his bank card and PIN number so that he could take as much money as possible from Chris. Because remember, Colin is unemployed at this time and serial killing is his new career. Once he was done with torturing Chris, which included holding a lighter to his testicles, (gasps) Colin suffocated him. Ouch! Again, Colin stayed to clean up and gather items that he would dispose of, and then left the flat in the morning. When Chris's body was found, initially the police thought that his death was a sex game gone wrong and deemed it an accident. Well, with the body harness, you would totally assume that it was a BDSM gone wrong. Yeah, and there was no struggle with his hands being handcuffed and his feet being bound. And then there would be like no defensive wounds or anything like that. Yeah, Chris lived in a different area, and so there were different investigators working his case, and therefore they did not link his death to Peter's. Not satisfied, Colin eventually phoned the police to shame them for not linking the two murders. Oh, he tells them. He calls them a lot, like I said. (laughs) He does. He just wants to be... Noticed. Yeah, he talks about all these other serial killers. Like he talks about Ian Brady even and just he wanted to be plastered on the news. He wanted everyone to be scared of him. He wanted to run with the big dogs of serial killers. Wow. A couple of weeks later, Colin struck again. He met 35-year-old Perry Bradley III on Friday, June 4th at the same pub. Perry was an American businessman and the son of Texas Democratic Party fundraiser Perry Bradley Jr., Perry was not openly gay to those who knew him, which made it harder for police to connect him to the other murders at first. Perry invited Colin back to his place in Kensington. Once there, Colin suggested that he tie up Perry. Perry wasn't too fond of the idea, so Colin told him that he couldn't perform sexually without involving bondage. Despite his hesitation, he sadly agreed. So is there any indication that he actually did get off? No. He no. never did. He just totally uses Not it that as I a could ruse. Find. Yeah. Okay. And he denies doing anything sexual with these men. Yeah. That's what Colin's saying. Who knows? Yeah. You would think that if that's the way his tastes went, that you would find semen at all the sites. Unless he took that with him. Oh, because he cleaned up so well. Yeah. Like even oh. if he touched a mug, he took that mug with him. Okay. So not sure. Colin tied him to his own bed, face down, and placed a noose around his neck. He demanded Perry's bank card and PIN number. He threatened him with torture if he didn't, so Perry complied. Colin was able to later take out 200 pounds from the ATM, as well as 100 pounds of cash from his residence, which would be close to $1,000 Canadian today. 
Colin reassured Perry that he wasn't going to hurt him and suggested that Perry fall asleep since Colin wouldn't be leaving his flat for hours. And eventually Perry did. He fell asleep, face down and bound to his bed. Colin later said that he considered leaving Perry unharmed, but then remembered that he could identify him. So he used the noose that he had placed around Perry's neck earlier to slowly strangle him to death. Again, he cleaned and took all the items of connection, and this time he left a doll in a sexual position on top of Perry's bound and naked body before leaving his place in the morning. All of our other serial killers, they kind of get off and enjoy killing, and it doesn't seem like this is the case with him at all. Yeah, he kind of is forcing himself to go through with all of this for the notoriety, for the fame. So bizarre. But now he's committed, right? (laughs) Escalation of commitment. That's a real thing. Yeah. And maybe it was escalating because he wanted to get it done and over with. I don't know. Or that it wasn't achieving the desired outcome. And so I just have to keep doing it more. Yeah, he wanted that fame and recognition. Police would discover his body three days after his death. Again, Colin phoned the police to taunt them. He said, quote, I did the American. You've got some good leads on my identity from clues at the scene. He told them that he desired to become a serial killer and that he studied the FBI manual for details and technique and that he knew the required body count. He said, quote, I have got the book. I know how many you have to do. So bizarre. So what are the police thinking at this time? I don't know. I don't think they know what to think. And because they're in different areas, not all the police are talking together yet. Maybe they think that he's just some wacko. Well, he is some wacko. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe they think he's a wacko. Uh, Melissa, he's on buried motives. He is a wacko. Oh, dear. I just got Sesame Street vibes. You know, like this episode brought to you by the letter W. (laughs) W is for wacko. Weirdo. Wanker. (laughs) There's a British name for him. (laughs) In his later confession, Colin said that he realized at this point that he was losing control. He said, quote, I was reaching a point where I was accelerating. I was just speeding up, getting far worse. It was just like a roller coaster effect. Colin made a second anonymous call to the police, this time saying, quote, Are you still interested in the death of Peter Walker, who was his first victim? Why have you stopped the investigation? Doesn't the death of a homosexual man mean anything? I will do another. I have always dreamt of doing the perfect murder. And again, I just wanted to note that some of the calls went to different police stations since his murders spanned more than one district. But they're not talking between districts then either. Not at this point. It doesn't sound like it. Okay. A few hours after Perry had been found and Colin had called the police, he ventured out to find his next victim only three days after his last kill. Colin met Andrew Collier on Monday, June 7th at the Gay Pub. Andrew was 33 years old, he lived in Dalston, and he worked as a housing warden. Colin went about the same routine. He tied up Andrew to his own bed and demanded his bank card and PIN number. However, Andrew refused. This angered Colin, and so he strangled Andrew with a noose. Colin searched through Andrew's items until he found 70 pounds in cash. He also came across documents indicating that Andrew was HIV positive. Andrew hadn't told Colin that he was HIV positive, and so this again made him furious. In retaliation, he burned parts of his body. To humiliate Andrew, Colin strangled his cat to death and then positioned it in a disturbing way on top of Andrew. He placed a condom on the cat's tail and placed the tail inside Andrew's mouth. (gasps) He then put a condom on Andrew's penis and put the 
cat's mouth around it. So the cat's laying down his chest. Some people believe that he killed the cat because the media had described him as an animal lover killer after he called about the two dogs locked up at the first crime scene. Oh, no, they're totally missing the point. Yeah, and he wanted to prove to everyone that he wasn't. He's like, I'm not an animal lover killer. Because oh. that would have sounded too soft, right? So a lot so of now... people speculated that's why he killed the cat. Okay. Colin again cleaned up, took any items that could identify him, and left the next morning during rush hour. However, Colin must have forgotten about touching the window and left a print at the crime scene. Apparently, there had been some type of commotion on the street below, and Colin had gone to the window to take a look and see what was going on. So whoever made that commotion on the street, thank you. This helps to get Colin put away. But when the last one, when he called the police, he said that he had left clues behind. I think he was just taunting them. Okay. Yeah, because he was very meticulous. This is the only crime scene that they find something. And it's his fingerprint. On the windowsill. On the windowsill. From when he looked at this, whatever commotion was yeah, caused. Yeah, like, what's going on down there? And he had forgotten that he had touched the windowsill, so he didn't clean it. This time, police were able to link Andrew's death with Peter because of the strange use of condoms and how the scene was staged. So he had shoved a condom in Andrew's mouth like he had with Peter. Hmm. On June 12th, Colin called the Kensington police and told them that he had already killed four men and that they had to stop him or he would kill again. And I thought, was this a desperate plea or was he taunting them? I don't know. From him not liking to sit with the bodies, I think it was more of a plea. Like, please just catch me so we can stop this. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not sure. That's giving him the benefit of the doubt, though, that That he's still kind of a decent guy, but he is killing people. So, Or was he wanting to make it seem more urgent that they find him? He's wanting Mm. the manhunt. He's wanting the news. He wants them to alert everybody. He's calling the police and being like, I'm doing these things. I'm doing these things. And they're not catching on that he's doing them? Like, it doesn't seem like they're taking him seriously at all. No, not really. So bizarre. Right. So you've got a serial killer that doesn't (laughs) want to kill. Police are being told and confessed to like, hey, I'm doing these things. And they're like, "Eh, whatever. Right. He's like in opposite world. (laughs) Because most serial killers don't want to get caught. No. They don't want to taunt the police. But he is doing things to hide it. Right. He's cleaning it meticulously. He's taking anything that can connect him. So it's not that he's leaving all this evidence. Yeah. So that he he does get caught right away. Right. And if he really wanted to be caught, then leave that huge handprint behind kind of thing. Right. Leave your hair. Like there's lots of things that you could do. So So it's a little contradictory this case. Yeah. Colin's final murder would take place on the same day that he told the police that they had better stop him. Saturday, June 12th, only five days after his previous murder. Emmanuel Spatiri was 41 years old. He liked to wear leather and he worked as a Maltese chef. He unfortunately met Colin at the same bar as the others. And I thought it was interesting too that nobody's noticing that that all these men are going missing from the same bar because he meets all of them there. Yeah, that's what I mean. But he did say at the beginning that he targeted these gay men because he didn't think the police would really pay too much attention to their murders either. Well, he was Which right. unfortunately, you know, 90s, it maybe wasn't high on the priority list. Yeah. I'm not bashing the police forces at that time, but it wasn't getting the attention that it should have. They went back to Emmanuel's residence in southeast London and carried out his ritual of binding his victim and demanding banking information. Emmanuel also refused to give up his PIN number, so Colin strangled him with a noose. He cleaned up the scene, but this time he set fire to the body before he left. He then made a call to the police to tell them to look for a body at the scene of a fire. Apparently, however, the fire did not burn long and police were not alerted to a fire. Was he sending up like a smoke warning signal? Like, here's the body, check it out. Well, he's escalating. He keeps doing all this stuff, right? Just notice me. Yeah. Could you imagine the frustration? No. He's doing all these murders and nobody's paying attention. Yeah. And I wonder if it's because he made this as his New Year's resolution at 
wasn't like he had been thinking about it since childhood and this was a growing thing until he finally couldn't help himself. Yeah. Like people don't usually make this as a goal. Like I'm going to become a serial killer. That will be my new career. It's so weird. Yeah. When he was talking to them on the phone, though, he did tell them that he probably wouldn't kill again. He said he now had five victims, which classified him as a serial killer in the UK at the time. But it's actually widely recognized as three or more murders to become a serial killer. So I'm not sure if he was misinformed or if the status changed or if it was different in England during the 90s. Maybe. Colin had to call the police the next day. He asked, quote, have you found the body in southeast London yet and the fire? And I felt like he's totally acting like the kid who always says, look at me, look at me. Yeah. Because he's like, did you guys find him yet? I'm not hearing anything. Like, did you find the guy with the fire? Pay attention to me, please. I'm over here. Yeah, you know, jumping up and down. Yeah. Emmanuel's body was found the next day by his landlady. So it wasn't even the police that found him. Colin was upset about the lack of coverage. He wanted to be in the same league as Britain's most notorious murderers. He felt like he was a nobody and he wanted desperately to be a somebody. Wanting this recognition would motivate Colin to later give the police a full confession. I wonder how many of our listeners have even heard about him. Yeah, I hadn't before researching this case. Police believed that they had a serial killer on their hands. The case finally spread throughout the media and the gay community were on alert that a serial killer was targeting gay men. So it took five murders for it to finally And how many different phone media. calls? Right? It wasn't even the murders that led them to it. It was probably the phone calls. Probably. Dr. Mike Berry, the psychologist I mentioned earlier, produced a profile for the police of what type of killer they were looking for. He said the killer was fueled by violent fantasies and that each murder would not be as good as his fantasy, which would drive him to kill again. He said the killer would not be HIV positive and was not seeking revenge as the police originally thought. Mm. Which I guess in some ways, each murder wasn't living up to what he wanted. He wasn't getting the hype. He was not HIV positive and he wasn't seeking a personal vendetta against these men. No, not against those men. Another psychologist, Dr. Jonas Rappaport, agreed with the profile and added that the killer was likely not a homosexual as the police had assumed, but rather posed that way to trick his victims. He said the killer was well-organized, probably a large build, and physically strong, making him confident that he could overpower his victims. And I find it fascinating how on point these profiles sometimes can be. Yeah, because he was a big guy. He was. And that he posed as a homosexual, that he wasn't actually, and the police assumed that he was, that he was a large build and physically strong, even knowing that. I think the second guy's was more accurate than the first guy's. I agree. You could poke some holes in the first guy's. It sounds more like a horoscope that kind of could just apply to anybody. Like you could kind of twist it to anybody's situation. Kind of like how you find what you're looking for. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But I do find it fascinating when they can nail down the specific. Yeah. Like with Charles Starkweather, knowing that he would have a stutter. That just blows my mind that they can do that. Yeah, that is fascinating. I feel like I missed my calling in life. I should have been a criminal profiler. (laughs) But it's just so fascinating. And that's why we dig deep on these dirtbags. Mm -hmm. Because we want to know what makes them tick. Why are they doing the things that they are? Yeah, absolutely. Upon investigating Emmanuel's murder, police found CCTV footage of Colin with Emmanuel at the train station going to Emmanuel's house. They were on a platform at Charing Cross Station. Police decided to release this footage to the public for help. Colin recognized himself in the police footage and decided to claim that he was with Emmanuel, but said that when he arrived at the flat, there was a third man waiting there. And since he wasn't interested in a threesome, he left, which was obviously a lie. But he decided people are going to recognize 
recognize me, so I better turn myself in first and make up this story. But it's a believable story. It totally is. And Colin might have gotten away with this lie, but the police were able to match his fingerprint with the one that they found on the windowsill at Andrew's flat. So and because he went in, they printed him and they connected him. And so did he not know that the police had that fingerprint? No, he obviously didn't know that they had any evidence on him. He had been so careful. Because really to commit five murders and leave one fingerprint at one of the scenes and no other evidence. That's pretty impressive. That is pretty meticulous. Mm -hmm. On July 21st, Colin was charged with Andrew's murder. On July 23rd, he was charged with Emmanuel's murder. Colin was sent to jail to await his trial. While waiting for his trial on August 19th, Colin decided to confess to all five of his murders and was subsequently charged with the murders of Peter, Chris, and Perry the next day. He told the prison officials, quote, you better get the police. I am the gay slayer. And my thought is that he wanted to claim credit to all five of his murders so that he could be known as a serial killer. Oh, absolutely. With the first two, that wasn't enough to classify him as a serial killer. So I'm assuming that that is why he ends up confessing. Well, and the whole reason he does it is for fame. So yeah. you might as well go for it all. Yeah, you've already done it. Yeah. You're already in jail. It was reported that Colin gave a full confession. I was able to watch parts of it online. But Colin was described as being calm, frank, relaxed, and showing no emotion. One of the authorities said about the confession, quote, He was very factual about his acts, as if he was describing someone else's activities. Absolutely no compassion at all. I didn't detect much hatred, but it was just matter of fact, like, I went down to the shops and bought this went into the flat and killed him. It was just very matter of fact. So that's interesting because it sounds like you said there are parts of his confession that actually did sound compassionate or that he struggled with. And so do you think that his factual relaying of the accounts is more of just a disassociation, like him going through the facts because he actually did feel something towards the murders and he had to disassociate himself with it? I don't think he felt anything like real guilt towards his victims because he didn't see them as people worthy to feel guilt over. Over. Okay. He was more disturbed about like sitting with the dead bodies right. and that kind of stuff. Okay. During his confession, Colin emphasized four specific points. First, he wasn't under the influence of drugs or alcohol at the time of the murders. Second, he was not gay or bisexual. Even though he had once worked as a bouncer at a gay club in Soho, he pretended to be gay to be able to lure his victims. Third, he never got undressed or engaged in any sexual activities with his victims and gained no sexual enjoyment from the murders. And fourth, he held no grudge against the gay community and that he had chosen gay men as his victims simply because they were easy targets. Oh, so it had nothing to do with his childhood. According to him. But there's debate on that. Colin claimed that he was triggered by anger about being approached by pedophiles in his youth. Oh. Yeah. He's saying he was angered by those men, but that he didn't have like a broad sense of anger against the whole community. Okay. He said his victims were gay deviants, all into S&M sexual behavior. He saw himself as ridding society of vermin and craved recognition as a superior person. And I think that's what it boils down to. Psychologists said the strategic placing of items related to childhood on the victims' bodies, meaning the teddy bears, the doll, and the cat, were symbolic of Ireland's repulsion of the loss of innocence. About the investigation, some have suggested that because the victims engaged in same-sex relationships, the police did not take their murders very seriously. Most were assumed a sexual accident. I did read some accounts that gay S&M acts were criminalized in that area right as Colin began to murder, making police even less motivated to investigate. 
On December 20th, 1993, Colin admitted his crimes before the judge and was given five life sentences. And I kind of thought it only took a year. He had made this New Year's resolution in December of 1992. And by 1993, he was before a judge given five life sentences. So he wasn't a failure at his resolution. No, he kept it. Because Colin confessed, there was no need for a trial, which is always great. Mm -hmm. I know Melissa always appreciates when there's no trial. Yeah, I just like the confession. Like, yes, I did this. There's no question. Yeah, own up to it. Yeah. On December 22nd, he was added to the list of life sentence prisoners who were unlikely ever to be released. There were only 35 people on that list at that time. The judge said that Colin was, quote, exceptionally frightening and dangerous. He continued to say, quote, to take one human life is an outrage. To take five is carnage. In my view, it is absolutely clear you should never be released. Colin surprisingly agreed with that statement, that it was likely a good idea if he wasn't ever released into the public. He said, quote, I think I should be placed in a position where I can no longer inflict harm upon others. I wonder if that goes back to his feeling out of control. Yeah, possibly. Just not a lot of the time a serial killer is going to say, yeah, don't let me out or I probably will hurt somebody. No, he's just so bizarre. He is. He goes against the grain in every way. Yeah. And I find it so interesting that the judge is saying like he's so dangerous or so disturbing. But yeah, he has a clear motive. Like I find those psychopaths that just bloodlust more disturbing. Right. But because maybe he doesn't have any mental impairments or, you know, those things that we he does have a conscience yeah. yeah we can't really rationalize it away like oh this happened and this happened you know and so maybe that does make him scarier maybe that makes him a bigger monster right because he has a conscience and he's still willing to murder yeah it's not that he doesn't know better right or that he doesn't have feelings of empathy right i don't know what makes more of a monster they all are they're all dirtbags it's always both <laughs> <laughs> the ones with empathy and the ones without <laughs> incidentally there are rumors that colin did in fact kill one more time but why wouldn't he take credit for it then i don't know if he does or not okay i'll tell you what happened while in wakefield prison in yorkshire it is said that colin strangled another inmate to death when he found out that he was a convicted child killer because remember he doesn't like the loss of innocence right the rumor states that no charges were filed against him since he was already serving a life sentence without parole and he couldn't receive any harsher of a penalty holding a trial would just be a waste of time as well as taxpayers dollars so i don't know he possibly could have admitted it But he wasn't charged. It wasn't released in the media. But he did do it. I'm assuming that he did. And kind of to confirm this rumor, two weeks after the inmate was murdered, Colin was transferred to Whitemore, which is a maximum security prison in Cambridgeshire. Okay. So it seems to line up. I totally believe that he did. And it kind of goes along with he was just trying to rid the world of... As he said, the vermin. Yeah. Yeah. And a child killer. You can't get worse than that. No. He was said to be placed in a private cell and kept under close watch. So it's totally suspicious. Mm -hmm. So where is Colin Ireland now? Are you wondering? He's out, right? Nope, he's dead. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) Colin died at the age of 57 on February 21st, 2012, while incarcerated at Wakefield Prison. A spokeswoman for Her Majesty's Prison Service said, quote, He is presumed to have died from natural causes. A postmortem will follow. Pulmonary fibrosis and a fractured hip that he had suffered earlier in the month were later listed as preliminary causes of death. Pulmonary fibrosis is a condition in the lungs where scarring makes it hard for a person to breathe. And I thought how karmatic that he had suffocated or strangled each of his victims. And then he himself had a hard time breathing near the end of his life. Oh, that is karma. I kind of liked that when I read it. Yeah. And that is the crazy case 
of an unbelievable New Year's resolution made by a dirtbag, Colin Ireland, who wanted to go down in history with his own chapter as a notorious serial killer, but became nothing but a lousy footnote instead. Wow. Wah, wah, wah. <laughs> but seriously, make better goals. Yeah. So, listeners, make some good New Year's resolutions. Remember the definition at the beginning? It's to improve your life. <laughs> Killing is not going to improve your life. <laughs> no, nor will it improve anybody else's. Nope. <laughs> That's it for us this week. We hope you guys have a wonderful week coming up. Take care and have a happy new year. However you celebrate, be safe out there. See ya. Bye. It's not a train, it's a grader. They can send us all of their tips. Sorry. Email us at barrymotives at gmail.com. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we'll get it. Maybe we won't. <laughs> so if you're thinking about that this New Year's, don't. We're not going to cover your case if you do. <laughs> Just kidding, we probably will. <laughs> and despite, despite, despite it, despite it all, despite it all, we saw doing the case. <laughs> Oh la la. <laughs> we went to the wrong country, but that's okay. <laughs> oh man, Christy. Until Colin, unfortunately. Oh, I didn't put it on silent. Christy. That's my sister. Text me when you're done recording today. Happy face. <laughs> okay, I will. <laughs> Maybe I need to make a New Year's resolution to learn how to spell better. No, ma'am, it's a handkerchief. I just need to know the information. I'm a curious person, Christy. It's a curious little cat. <laughs> Show notes made at midnight. That's right. <laughs> and gathered any items that could connect. Colin found his second victim. Why do we say the things that we do? The things you learn. That's right. We're learning a lot. I don't know. I didn't really want to go there, but thank you. So sorry. <laughs> warning signals. Warning signals. <laughs> like, wait a minute. This doesn't make any sense. That's the opposite. <laughs> okay. That's dumb. A man just entered my house and left. <laughs> We're going to just assume it's Melissa's husband. And we'll... <laughs> if you hear a commotion, we just got murdered. <laughs> Wouldn't that be a podcast? <laughs> Hey, we're live, pal, and we'd love for you to come check out our podcast, Tales from the Estate. Each week, we talk about our top five favorite somethings. My beautiful wife, Caitlin, likes to share all sorts of random facts. Yeah. Did you know that cows have accents? We did now. But we also review all sorts of snacks and other great things. And so if you love everything random, I think you'd enjoy Tales from the Estate. So come check us out. Yeah. Okay, thanks. Bye. Jeff Woods and I'm shining a light on music and the rock stars who make it. He just was one of those people, he, he stood out. He was a magic guy. He really was a magic guy. All, we all have force. He had the same amount of force as we all had. This was before Led Zeppelin. Robert was full on. I mean, he was Led Zeppelin without the band behind him. He had the hair, the jeans, the whole thing, you know. And he was amazing. The Records and Rockstars podcast, heard around the world and yours to hear wherever you get podcasts. All the episodes from jeffwoodsradio.com. Another Sound Off Media Company podcast.